Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Gen Z. Gen Z is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the special bonus episode of Gen C. This episode was recorded in collaboration with our friends over at Overpriced JPEGs. It's a crossover episode. In this episode, myself, Avery, and Overpriced JPEGs' Carly Riley, we are all going to sit and talk about how NFTs and digital collectibles are changing IRL experiences around things like concerts, live events, sporting events. The focus here is whether or not the blockchain is helping to disrupt a paradigm that's been around for 100 plus years of the live events industry. It just so happens that Carly and Overrice JPEGs are going on tour for a live event. Avery and her team are planning for VCon in May. And we over here at Coindesk are planning for consensus and are about to release our three-year access pass, which will be an NFT with a ton of amazing rewards. Everyone should check that out at coindesk.com slash consensus NFT. So really enjoy this conversation. It is another example of how blockchain has the potential to disrupt and change established industries in ways that ideally benefit the folks who are participating and the consumers that are involved in trying to buy into those industries and how we can reward additive value instead of extractive value away from them. So take a listen and we'd love to hear what you think. Hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on LinkedIn, hit us up in any place you can find us and enjoy this collaborative crossover episode. So excited for this, y'all. Sam, Avery, a little OPJ Gen C crossover. Very fun. We love a collab. Thank you for having us, Carly. It's what we're all about here in NFTs, you know? We should have worn matching outfits. Ah, what a miss, guys. <laughs> That's what we needed. Gen o- overpriced generation. Right. 90s merch. band shirts. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. I... I no, we have a lot we want to get into in this episode. I think there's going to be a lot of good to come out of this. Let's start by just level setting people a little bit on the macro live events industry. 
it's obviously had like a rocky number of years with with the COVID stuff, but it's also like a thriving industry. So, uh, Sam, I think you have maybe the biggest insight here and would love to have you just like kick us off with with what's going on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, the live events industry is actually one of the oldest in uh, in the world, right? And especially when we think of like in America, if you imagine when like Ringling Brothers would literally like walk elephants through the Brooklyn tunnels uh, in order to get to Manhattan and, you know, or all the folks who would like go town to town to set up these big circuses and carnivals um, and concerts and theater. And all of that was always a really, really big industry. And, you know, really also paved the way for advertising in general, which I think is also kind of interesting. You know, the idea that sort of putting up notices, flyers, postings um, in small towns was one of the first ways that people communicated with each other. Um, so the exhibition industry has been a really big one just for like level setting. It's a $1.5 trillion industry by 2028, according to, to recent uh, research. Every single sector of it is growing. And when they, they say sectors, we think about that in both concerts, but also sporting events, corporate events, exhibitions and expos and conferences. Every sector of it is, is growing. Um, the, the largest growth right now is coming from 21 to 40 year olds. So when you think about that, folks with disposable income, which are, are sort of bringing, you know, more experiences to their lives than stuff to their lives. And I think mm. that's also like a, a way to think about it. Even last year, Disney and granted we're coming out of the pandemic still to some degree, but a 72% growth in parks and exhibitions at Disney. So there's just a lot of stuff happening. What's really funny when you think about the general arc of experiences is like it had this really kind of big rise until television came around. When television came around, everyone stayed home and stopped going to experiences. And so it was really only after kind of like World War II, people started to come again. But the big jump in the experiential industry starts around social media. So when Facebook, when Instagram, all that comes around, people then start to say, what well, I need content to put on my socials. And you see a giant explosion oh, wow. happen in that in that world, too. And so I think it's pretty fascinating. I don't think it's a coincidence, for example, that you have social starting, you know, in the mid 2000 aughts. And then in 2010, Ticketmaster and Live Nation come together to form this like exhibition monopoly powerhouse. And why? Because everyone wants to go to a show and take their phone out. And I think it's just so I think it's really interesting for us to level set that up um, for us to have a conversation about while we also know it's a really hard business to be in. So that's something yeah. I think that we should also have a conversation about. Well, it's so interesting. I feel like that's such a classic example of I'm sure when social was first coming out and, and certainly with the Internet and people are like, oh, my gosh, no, like nobody's ever going to, you know, go have real experiences anymore because they just have social media. And it's the opposite, right? <laughs> like it ends up fueling the opposite dynamic. It's just like unforeseeable consequences of technology that, you know, people want to project about. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of that with blockchain where people are like, oh, no, it's going to kill this, that or the other thing. And who knows what it might instead actually fuel. Is there anything we want to talk about more on like Ticketmaster Live Nation and and I feel like you know that's just been in the public consciousness in a way that the public was not really aware of that monopoly and the extractive practices maybe call it writ large in the events industry that I feel like the Taylor Swift ticket fiasco really put into like front and center um I don't know maybe just like the, the general problems with live events even while we understand there's a lot of opportunity so a fun fact about me is that my first internship was actually at Live Nation in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm from Nashville. And because of that, I knew a lot of people who worked in the music industry. And uh, Live Nation, at the time, they had this awesome 
office and music row and they were figuring out how to digitize tickets um and the acquisition i think happened in 2010 but at that point like digital tickets were still kind of a new thing the majority of tickets were still actually physically printed and all of that so it's really amazing to see just in you know 13 years how far that landscape has come and now blockchain based tickets are of course a thing as well and and it's interesting because you know i've seen live nation and ticketmaster lean into trying to embrace what's happening in terms of these digital tickets, because I think it creates so many supply chain efficiencies for them. But on the flip side, I think it's just entered the mainstream consciousness, how much of a monopoly this is and how little um, artists and the performers and the venues actually benefit um, from this, you know, current situation of ticketing. I do think, though, it's important and, and Avery hit it spot on. I think the thing that's so interesting about it is you know, think of all the bands, right? I think Pearl Jam comes to mind for me who like wanted to keep ticket prices low for their fans. And then you have the ticket masters who come in and say, great, you can charge whatever you want. We're going to throw 25% on top of that, no matter what. Um, and, and sort of give people not a great experience. When the monopoly happens, you get a kind of exorbitant ticketing um, entity combined with like 70% of all venues in the US under one umbrella where they then can control both sides of the experience. And I think, you know, we in the kind of blockchain industry look at this to say, hey, that feels like a model that can be disrupted, except that physical space is a really hard thing to disrupt. Well, this was when I was first getting into the space and being like, okay, NFT ticketing seems like such a no brainer. That was when I started to understand, well, the, the, the challenge is it's, it's actually not like you have to get Ticketmaster on board for, for blockchain ticketing. Like I remember interviewing Get Protocol, who is doing interesting things with blockchain ticketing. And you're like, oh, this is so cool. And you're like, but they actually can't just like steal, they can't just have a better product and then steal market share from Ticketmaster. Because if you are Taylor Swift, if you are insert an act above a certain size, you have to go to Ticketmaster Live Nation venues in order to perform for your like fan group, you know, because they, they literally won't fit in non-Live Nation venues. And so they just have a complete hold monopoly on that segment of the market. And that's also the segment of the market that would do the most in terms of furthering NFT ticketing because they have the most fans. They could actually get people to convert and, and buy tickets in a, in a new and interesting way. Um, I want to, I want to talk about, and maybe Sam or, or either of you like want to talk a little bit more about, um, the problems with live events today. That monopoly obviously part is a part of it. They're just, concert venue. These things are often very extractive environments broadly, which I know, Sam, you were talking about before we, we hopped on. And then talk about like, where do we think tickets can actually be a solve? Like which parts of these can, can tickets really solve? Yeah. I mean, I, I believe, and Avery and I had an amazing conversation with Mark Mitchie from Salesforce uh, a couple of months ago. And he kept, he said something that really kept sort of sticking with me and still does to this day, which is the idea that, um, a lot of these brands that you think of a Disney, if you think of a Live Nation, they look at their most loyal customers to say, great, these people come a lot. How can I get more money out of them? Right. So the idea of like, oh, now we'll do the meet and greet. And now you and Selena Gomez can hang out, but it's going to cost you $400 in order to have that. And she like really doesn't want to hang with you anyway. She's like getting, <laughs> getting her bag. Right. So whereas I think we all think about this through the lens of, Web3 loyalty membership, when we really think of the member part of membership, it really should be how do you reward your most loyal customers? So the blockchain allows us the opportunity to say, oh, this person came to six events and bought three t-shirts. Maybe I should give them something without having to charge them because think of the halo that that causes. And that I think is the real disruptive opportunity of what blockchain allows. 
But I do believe, you know, if you're in the corporate side of Disney, you have a price per head of every single person coming in to your park every time. And your goal is to make it from $142 to $166, right? And that difference times the tens and hundreds of thousands of people who, who come every single year is a dramatic amount of money. Um, so I think they're really looking at the profit motive where I think we kind of collectively think of what's the communal motive that sort of we can help enable because we know that that actually brings money to it because people then happily will support you, but they'll support you because they want to, not because they're sort of being dragged into it. Yeah, I think from my perspective, Sam knows a lot more about events um, than I do. We've just sort of been been newer to this space, but learning every day. Um, and I think fandom is bigger than ever. And the pandemic also, you know, drove everyone online, but then drove people back to live events with um with increased appetite to actually connect with other humans, whether it's a music festival, whether it's EDM, whether it's Burning Man, whether it's a concert or, you know, a sporting event, we actually saw those numbers really go up following the pandemic. Um, and I think fandom is stronger than ever. In our sort of little microcosm, um, I think VCon was a great example of like that fandom that started digitally and was actually manifesting physically um, at a real event was something that was pretty amazing to see. Probably the first of its kind where we've seen that many people sort of get together um, who hadn't met before and sort of uh, gel as one community. Um, but I think some of the, the broader um, macro challenges with events, first is just logistics. Anyone who's ever planned an event knows there is a tremendous amount of logistics that goes into it. Everything from security and bathrooms and you know policies and making sure no one has a slip and fall and insurance and all of that stuff is a very real, um, you know, you need professionals. You need professional production people who have done this for a long time, who understand how to manage this type of thing. Secondarily is ticketing. I think gauging supply and demand is challenging in any industry. And um, in few places, it is a, is it as apparent as ticketing where, okay, great. Do you want to get the biggest venue? Do you want to get a medium sized venue? You've got to sell that out. You've got to make sure it's full because, you know, obviously people can see that. I think supply and demand with ticketing is always challenging, especially in a post pandemic world where consumer behavior has shifted pretty dramatically. Um, then the third, you know, sort of challenge beyond just logistics and uh, sort of gauging supply and demand with events is talent. It's making sure the talent, like, you know, is able to bring people together in an exciting way. Back to my, you know, Nashville examples, I think country musicians are randomly some of the, the best community builders. Mm. You know, growing up, one of my best friend's dad is actually in the Jimmy Buffett band. And if you've ever been to the Coral Reefers, you know, <laughs> they can really get a crowd going. And, and they've, you know, had this as their kind of core part of their business for decades now, right? They have Margaritaville, they have the franchises, they have the albums and all of that. But, you know, no place is, is that as apparent as like at an actual show um, where they bring their community together. And, mm. you know, they've done different versions of fan clubs and things like that, which I think have the most direct connection to what we think about as membership and um, fan clubs is... It, uh, has a lot of sort of synergy with what we refer to as like Web3 loyalty programming. You know, whether you're talking about Kenny Chesney and his No Shoes Nation, like they have this free tier and then they have a $25 tier. And what that gets you is access to exclusive merch and early access to tickets and and things like that, that, you know, I think are just the predecessor to what we're seeing being built today of these sort of conferences and 
um, super events of the future that are just blockchain-based and blockchain-enabled. But it's a, just a new iteration of the same consumer behavior. People love um, spending time together in person. They'll travel for it. They're excited for it. They want to share it on social media. They want to anticipate it. They want to enjoy the moment. Once they're there, they want to get the merch. They want to remember it. And I think the you know saving of tickets is a very real thing. People save you know concert tickets, they save memorabilia, they save cups from you know concerts and sporting events and things that they love. Um, so I think that what we're seeing now is this transition to some of that being virtual first, as a lot of consumers are living in this sort of digital first reality. So I just unpacked a, I just shared a lot of thoughts, a lot of country. Um, feel free to cut as needed. Who, who knew your country roots, Avery? I, I actually did not. No. So what's so funny is when, you know, when I hear you talking about a problems in the event, the event space, some of this ticketing and blockchain can maybe help some of it, it just can't. And it's just like, you know, humans slip and fall. And like, that's a thing, right? Uh, but what's so funny is when I got into NFTs initially, and v- VCon or VFriends was a huge part of that. But but VCon even specifically was sort of a part of that. I shared this with you before, Avery, that like I was doing the math in my head when I was minting my VFriend being like, all right, like three years of a multi-day conference with somebody like Gary V, what would that be worth? And I could math that out and say, okay, I'll, I'll pay half an ETH for this. Um, but when I, I came at it from this perspective of, oh my gosh, and NFTs are a no-brainer as tickets because you could now cut the artists in on royalties in interesting ways or you could cut these people in on on you know the the secondary sale the scalper sales in a way that we currently can't do and i i guess i've done a 180 i'm like i don't know maybe that's a thing maybe that's not a thing royalties seem to be a huge bitch you could probably like I, I don't know if we're even gonna get there i'd be curious your guys's perspective but yeah. and i'll just finish this thought with but now why I'm bullish about it is everything you guys are getting into. And this seems to be now, like my my perspective on this has shifted, which is, you know, it's about loyalty three, right? It's it's about extending fan experience. It's about going to the show, having the NFT as your ticket and that NFT unlocking special content behind the scenes or getting the NFT integrated into the merch you bought at that show and that unlocking. Like it's actually not about, I hate to use this word, but hopefully folks understand what I'm saying in this context, like about the utility of like, oh, this is literally the ticket. And so there's like certain smart contract things that can happen, but rather as a totally as a collectible and as a, a an experience extender. Yeah, I I love that you just brought up that example. And I think Gary had such a vision around each initial mint needs to have a direct value. And anyone who's been to a conference, whether you've been to Consensus or you've been to South by Southwest or you've been to Art Basel, you know you have to pay to go to those. Like you have to pay thousands, hundreds or thousands of dollars to attend those types of things. And there are very real costs in terms of, you know, location and beverages and security and, and all the things we just talked about, right? So there and speakers and flying them in and, you know, lighting and, and all of the things that go into it. So I think anyone who's been to a conference understands that innate value, which like you could see Carly. And that was this sort of initial hook. And I think an initial hook that was as clear as that made a lot of sense to people in being like, I'm getting my money's worth just by buying this. The secondary elements, um, you know, the royalties and the loyalty and the subsequent airdrop and the subsequent programming, that's all like sort of a, you know, showing what's possible. But you first have to start by giving people a really tangible example so they feel like I'm not just, you know, giving you money for a JPEG that gets me nothing. Um, So I think that was a really critical you know, first use case. And I actually think for a lot of enterprises and brands who may be listening to this or people who are building in this space, it's a good approach to take because you're you're giving um, 
your community something for a very clear value exchange um, right off the back. It's not like, you know, I'm charging you an ETH for this and it may or may not appreciate. As we all know, like that's not really the appropriate language to use when marketing an NFT um, due to our, our friends in the um, SEC. You've got to be really clear about what they're getting and when. And if something else happens on top of it, it's a pleasant surprise. Um, but I think that, you know, that was an important starting point to show to people that an NFT can have direct value. And, and Sam, I know you all are cooking up some cool things like this um, in consensus. Like, you know, consensus is the biggest crypto conference um, that there is. I think there were, what, like 20,000 people there last year. So it's massive. Um, and bringing this new opportunity to an audience who's already so crypto native, I think, is a massive opportunity. I would. Yeah. I mean, before we talk about that, I do want to because I think, Carly, there's something we should be comfortable talking about, right? If you think about the X, Y axis and on, you know, on the X is like Burning Man to CES and on the Y is like a networking event to the TED conference, right? Like there's so many ways one can think about where to plot your experience. Mm. Um, what we have found recently, right? I mean, I believe Exploverse was canceled. Proof of Conference was just canceled. I think there's something around the fact that I think people think this stuff is easy. And I also think mm. they think it's a lot cheaper than it is, right? <laughs> I mean, Avery mentioned that we have consensus, one of the biggest conferences out there. What people don't know is like just the field crew alone is 250 people. And that's just so we can keep 20,000 people informed and safe, right? And that's before all the programming team and all of the AV and all of the folks taking like and checking your tickets and all of that stuff. It is a giant endeavor. And I think people love the idea of I get to be on stage and have an amazing conversation and be Steve Jobs. But the fact is it's very, very difficult to get to the point where Avery gets to look at amazing on stage, right? So that's part of what we have to think about. And I don't think people think enough about a great experience is about like, it's a UX problem that is very hard to solve. Um, once you think about that, then I think you can think, how does one go about this experience? So mm -hmm. as an example, as Avery mentioned, we have a, pro a project coming out March 2nd called Microcosms. It's like a partnership with Artblocks. It's a piece of art. And then there is a ton of like, conference-like rewards that we can talk about in a minute. But like for us, we decided it's like 5% of our audience should be those tickets. So because, and, I think, and there's a couple of reasons for that that we should get into, but partly because we also know that you know, in order to keep a conference on and make the money of it, you have to actually continually charge money every year. But if there are folks who really want to be loyal and say, you know, I want to front run the opportunity to be able to get a, a better deal, to have some insider access, to get some special perks. That's, I think, where NFTs are amazing because they get they, they get people to be able to say, hey, this is going to be an amazing experience. I'd like to sort of buy in for the, for a multiple year experience. We learned that from VCon, you know, with, which was really smart, which is let's not do this forever ticket. Let's do this like limited timing ticket, but let's over compensate with the value that we're offering. And that value can be social value. That value can be, hey, maybe there's something that I get rewarded that I don't want. I can sell it to somebody else and maybe that helps offset my ticket. Um, that va value is also the badge value of, look, I'm an insider. I'm like down with Gary. I'm down with Coindesk. I'm down with OPJ, right? And that I think also is something to think about is how do you align that I get to say I was there and I was in the inner circle. And I think even that alone has a value in people's minds that we should think about. The reward systems are super fun and we should talk about that. But I think we should think about 
first understanding what your event even wants to be and is it realistic to have the event? And then how do you kind of reward and then your economic model becomes a really complex sort of tokenomic strategy of how to think of cash versus sort of pre-selling opportunities into the future. I think using what you guys are doing at Coindesk is a really interesting way to take people through the thought process of like, how do you think about something like this? To set it up, I almost have these three categories in my head and I want to get your y'all's reactions to it when I think about NFT ticketing. I think there's the just direct utility, the NFT as the ticket that needs to be scanned or, you know, and whatever. There's NFTs as a collectible experience extender that I was sort of speaking about earlier. And then there's this NFT is the access pass, which ranges from, you know, what Vayner, what, you know, what Friends did, what you're doing, which is like some number of years, three years access to what we see something like Loudpunks does, which is lifetime <laughs> access to something. And I love Loudpunks, but I think that is worth touching on some of that pieces. Those are kind of the three categories or the three ways that I bucket tickets. And obviously a lot of these do some combination of all three. Are there any that we're missing? Is that how you guys think about it as well? Yeah, I think from our perspective at Vayner, um, we, uh, I agree with everything you just said, right? And I think all of those have like direct, you, they have direct value depending on who you are. I also love, um, you know, NFTs as tickets because it allows you to connect before, during, and after the event. The best thing about an NFT from a brand perspective or an enterprise perspective or a creator perspective is that this is like programmable loyalty and you can always add on to it. So before the event, you can, you know, better understand your consumers. You can understand what they're doing. You can use this as an engagement vehicle. You can help drive sort of social chatter and social relevance. During, there's obviously the, you get access to the event through this mechanism. Anyone who's done an NFT ticket at event will tell you it's not perfect yet. It's still early days. There's still a little bit of manual checking that goes on at the door. Um, That's just how it is. We're still very early to this. I think Token Proof has done a great job pioneering in this space, but they've really pioneered so far for Web3 natives who understand this stuff. If you're just a normal average Joe or Jane, um, you're still like, which app do I download and where do I find it? It's still like a new behavior. Um, So I think it's important to be realistic about that. And, you know, during the event, there's also, it can unlock discounts. It can unlock, you know, special merge, depending on exactly what type of a, an NFT and ticket you have, which I think is pretty cool. And then the magic really starts to like be better than the status quo after the event, in my opinion. There's the obvious, like, yes, you have a digital collectible and like, yes, I saw the Beatles first or whatever it is that you can prove it. But you can also use that as an extender to like, maybe those people get early access to the next one. Maybe they get something free. Maybe they get a meet and greet that's token to me, like the real reason yeah. to give a shit about this is that the after matters so, so much. Before so, and during is like there's a clear use case, but I think after is like really where the, the magic happens for being something that really becomes w- worth investing in this piece of innovation. Yeah, I was bucketing the collectible experience extender into one, but I think you're right that they're they're really more separate things. So it's like you have the NFT utility that like gets you into the event and maybe there's royalties baked into that in some capacity though. Again, who knows with that? You've got the collectible element was just like, hey, in 20 years, you were at that baseball game where Pete Rose, I always use Pete Rose as an examples, which is so bizarre because nobody of my generation would have any, like don't, doesn't even watch baseball, let alone who Pete Rose is. But, um, and then and then there's the, ex- the experience extension piece and then there's the, um, the kind of access pass. This is a pass for five years or a, a lifetime piece. So Sam, how did you guys decide that this was the year you, you were going to start with NFT tickets? Because certainly you've dabbled in this, you know, you've been, you guys have been in this space for a long time doing conferences. You could have done this last year. 
And um, yeah, how, how did you think about that? It's important to do it during the bear market, of course. Um, so, <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, I'm this just, is a good time to be launching no, an NFT. It, it, if it you're going to launch an NFT in a bear, this is a great time to no, be doing it. No, of course. It. I think for us, we, we, and again, we did a lot of learning and, um, you know, super props to um, what Avery and, and the v, uh, VCon team have done. Um, we saw what I think a lot of people did incorrectly. I think Loudpunks is a great example of it's great for the press release but it's really hard to continually support that audience in perpetuity over all of their different events. I would not want to be, you know, in the room when the person who created that project leaves for his next job or her next job and suddenly you have to support this thing. It's it's going to be tough. So what we did was we sort of said a couple of things to ourselves, which was one you know, we have a little bit more of a professional audience. So an audience that's kind of willing to spend a little bit of money, um, which I think is one of the challenges when you look at some of the, the sort of events that haven't been successful, whether or not people are willing to part with their dollars. Whereas I think when you have a B2B event, and I think, again, you know, people love seeing Gary. So that I think the idea of spending money there makes a total, like a lot of sense. For us, though, it's like, you're going to come to the most important event in crypto. Great. We then thought like, there's a networking opportunity and also people come to consensus because they want opportunities, right? And that I think is really key. So what we did was actually took a little bit of what Avery was talking about, thinking about post, but we also said pre what makes this a little bit of magic. So like our idea is one, you know, we believe in what happens on chain is the most important. So therefore we sort of aligned with generative art because we think generative art is the sort of native expressive, expressive form of the blockchain. Um, that's why we work with art blocks. And then we said, what would be sort of most useful for the folks who come to consensus? And then we created a reward structure. We have 19 different rewards, a lot of value going in, but everything from the fact of like, someone is gonna get airdropped the opportunity to have to speak on stage at consensus. Right. So imagine someone gave Carly Riley 20 minutes, talk whatever you want to talk about. That can that could be a career defining moment in in the sort of crypto world. Right. We have three people are going to win like one hour pitches or brainstorms to three amazing VCs. Right. So the idea is, oh, I get to talk to Derek Edwards or Andrew from Spermion or Mags and get to pitch them. Like what happens if someone gets invested because of that? Right. We also have the opportunity to say, how do I make my experience there better? So it's like, oh, you know, I'd love to bring a friend. 50 people are going to get a companion ticket. Someone's going to get their hotel stay comped. You know, we're, what we did is we looked at a reward structure, which was all about how do we create the most value on the ground for people? And some of it is just fun rewards and merch and, you know, signed copies of books and art. But we also said, actually, how do you make like a, biz a business to business kind of conference sort of mm. more supercharged. Well, great, mm. if I got to speak, if I got to exhibit, if I got to meet people I really wanted to meet, that sort of was the unlock for us. The other thing that we did is then kind of what Avery was saying is we thought long tail. And so for our project, we actually re-roll our IRL rewards every year for the next three years. So if you didn't win sort of one of the rare rewards in 2023, if you hold it, 2024 is coming around, suddenly we've proven out a model that allows us to say, great, we're going to actually expand our IRL opportunities and we re-roll it. So even if you have a common piece of art, you get to then still have the same chance as whoever has the rarest piece of art in order to win the IRL uh, piece. And that's where we we think it's pretty special. Not to mention that, you know, we just looked and we said, hey, at our price, and our, ours is not cheap, it's 1.5 ETH, right? So we are expecting people to pay a lot, but even that 1.5 ETH is much, much cheaper than if you just came to consensus for the next three years. So that's something we also thought a lot about, which was just like 
from the get from the get go, you're getting better value, which is kind of like what you were saying, Carly, regarding VCon, um, that you're willing to pay that ticket price. And then we're like, great, how do we just supercharge that and think about it in the future? Why does this make sense for you? And I think Avery and I might have similar answers on our end from a, a VCon and or what I'm doing with like the OPJ tour stuff. But but I'm curious on your side, Sam, like why does this make sense for you and Coindesk from a business perspective to do it this way? Uh, that's a great question. There's two reasons I would I would look at. One is when we look at, you know, there's two and a half, maybe three million wallets total in the NFT space, but like Coinbase alone has 90 million wallets. So there's a vast delta right now between those who collect NFTs and those who are in crypto or interested in crypto. So what we want to do is kind of start to shrink that if possible. Mm -hmm. There are skeptical people in the crypto industry that are skeptical about NFTs. We want them to say, oh, there may actually be value in the NFT ecosystem. In the same way that there might be people who are really into NFTs that are not saying there's this whole world of crypto that I'm not getting access to because maybe I'm only going to these sort of NFT conferences. So we kind of wanted to see if we can cross pollinate audiences. And I think that's really important for us. The second thing from a business case that makes sense for us is the idea of there are people who love Coindesk who have come to every consensus since 2015. How do you kind of reward them for saying, you know, you're a little bit of an insider. So by unlocking new opportunities for them, we can create more and more value. I'm not expecting that every one of these is going to be purchased and held. I'm expecting also that there is going to be, you know, someone who gets in and then gets a job in Web2, like big tech and doesn't come, but they get to sell it. Like that's part of why we're all doing this. But but I think for us, we just wanted to sort of explore the fact. And, and honestly, like we have a thousand total pieces. We may sell 482. Like I just don't know what's going to happen right now. And we're kind of okay with any of that because for us, it's more like we just think the opportunity of introducing something that is always additive in value, um, that every perk you get, for example, you can keep, you can gift it, you can sell it, right? So, you know, the thing I really like, you know, we were talking about this on a call with Avery last night, but it's like someone's going to win like a booth to exhibit at consensus, $19,000 if you were to buy it rate card right now. But there might be a startup out there who can't afford $19,000, but maybe Avery doesn't want to exhibit and she gets that as the reward. So great. Someone says, great, I'll offer you two ETH for it. And she says, great, I just have my, my ticket for the next three years covered, right? But really what it did is it created opportunity for someone who wants to be there in a different way. And that's where I think the whole thing for us is, is like, yes, it would be great to front load some revenue for an event. Um, but on the flip side, if we can create the opportunities and tell the stories that this stuff enables, that is the more exciting part of it for me. Well, it, it's so interesting. I feel like, you know, it's it's the, the brand value to Coindesk of being at the nexus of a community discovering another community, right? Like, like Coindesk becomes that brand that introduced or consensus becomes that conference that introduced XYZ to this other audience and this audience to that audience. Like, is part of the brand value, it sounds like you're getting out of this. There's the, the economic upside of, you know, in the, in the short term, to your point, front loading some costs, especially during a recession, you know, or, or a down market, I guess, right? Like that's, uh, you know, appealing. Um, and then there's just the the brand loyalty maybe that you're developing as people are having a really positive experience because they got that exhibition that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And there's that gamification piece. And I feel like the world is just moving to gamification. And there's almost that, like, there's that dynamic inherently with all of this, of like that lottery feeling of like, what did I win? Is there a way to game this where I can, you know, sell pieces of it. I mean, that's the interesting thing which you you just got at, but I don't know if people really like picked up on it is you're abstracting all of the rewards away from the original like from the original NFT itself, which 
Gary, did, you guys did last year for VCon. Like the tickets for VCon were airdropped separately from the the tokens. I guess I'd be curious from both of you how you thought about that. I have a perspective here I'll share after, but but curious, like Sam for CoinDesk, why it was a no brainer, and, and Avery, how you guys felt about that on the VCon side. Yeah, for sure. So I think Gary, um, and you know, the Gary's vision was very specific to like fund this conference taking off for three years, and I don't want to speak for him and, and his intentions, um, but I think it's very likely that this conference actually might continue beyond those um, originally planned three years. We have a lot of demand. You know, people ask every Alpha day. Um, uh, well, yeah, wait, what? <laughs> Pause As on I that said, not, non-confirmed, um, you know, will not speak for Gary, but I think it's very likely, you know, we have a lot of inbound interest to people who want to come to the conference because they saw it on social, they heard about it, they thought it was amazing. Even quite a few of our clients, you know, we're a professional services firm. So at VaynerX and Vayner3, like we work with Fortune 500 companies, like that's our business. And a lot of them were a little like, I don't know about this, guys. And, and then those of them who were able to join us last year really saw it and were like, wow, this is amazing. Amazing. And now this year, they're like, how do I get my ticket? And it's a new behavior, right? Getting an Ethereum-based wallet, being able to set, get set up with that. And, and that's a pretty big barrier for people who probably would be fine to just pay on a credit card um, if we had a, a normal ticketing solution. So I think that's something to explore in the future. Mm. But the original strategy um, of the three years, I think, is really smart and is one that we've seen a lot of people um, be inspired by. Um, let's just say because it. Call it's, it. Um, I think it's a it's a long enough amount of time that you can really develop a series of a program, and it's a short enough time that you can actually feel like ready to fulfill it. I think you know we were talking about some of the challenges with events in terms of costs and in terms of production realities and all of that, um, and not getting ahead of your skis with a commitment. I think really matters. I think the original lock was that that was the first hook that was like of the dinner that was the meat, and then the potatoes are the collabs and the access and the cool stuff you can do with gear and the special tokens that get you basketball and, you know, the uh, Toys R Us um, collab, all that stuff sort of comes on top as a sprinkle. And I think it depends on who you speak to from a VFriends holder perspective, what they value the most. Some value the community and the folks that they've been able to align with from a values perspective. The Discord is popping 24-7 of people who, of course, it's popping when Gary gets in there and gets everybody excited. But it's also just, you know, people are building friendships um, in a real way around, you know, the values of empathy and kindness and patience that Gary espouses in his content and is brought to life through the VFriends characters. Then some people really see the values of the conference. Some people love it. They're master networkers. They want to be there first. They want to take their selfie with Gary. They want to see Carly Riley and Sam and Avery, you know, do talks and they really enjoy that. Um, they want to get free drinks from Captain Morgan and, you know, free Pepsi and all the fun stuff. Um, and uh, some people, so some value the community, some value the event, and some value um, the ability to, you know, have this as sort of a liquid investment, if you will, where if they're happy, great. And if they're not, they can sell it. Um, you know, you've been able to sell your tickets to events forever, but there hasn't been like a sort of clear market for it. It's always been a little bit of a gray market of like, who are you selling it to? Where is it a dude from Craigslist? Is he coming to, you know, uh, meeting up at a Starbucks or like, you know, are you transferring this through Live Nation and paying a bunch of ticketing fees? Um, or is it being mocked, marked up to an exorbitant fee? I think um, the ability to be liquid with this type of uh, mm. a buy is something that's really unique and unusual. But um, I think depending on who you speak to, they might have a different opinion of like why this matters. And from this sort of brand building perspective, you know, I think one of the things that was genius for Gary is like building the sort of IP of, of VFriends, but secondarily VCon. VCon has its own branding. It has its own color palette. It has its own text. You know, we are 
starting to build the brand of VCon as its own thing. It has its own website and social handles for a reason that can kind of continue to build a flywheel under sort of Gary's brand um, as its own thing as well. That is, of course, very closely related to VFriends. But in the future, maybe that could go even beyond. It's a lot of seats at uh, Lucas Oil Stadium. So let's see where the future holds. I want to add on that in that, I mean, on the one hand, and I think people who bought V friends also were really buying into Gary's vision. And I think the characters within the V friend collection really also represent his aspiration. You know, for us, we worked with an amazing generative artist, Fahad Karim, who's part of the Artblocks family and who's done some truly like beautiful work. We took, you know, the approach like our, our project and our rewards program evolves over the three years. The artwork itself evolves over a three year period. Mm -hmm. So the generative work itself reveals and sort of unveils different pieces. So we also love the idea of a a sort of dynamism that both on the visual rarity and the visual traits matched what we were doing on the IRL side. We thought all that was a really fascinating ecosystem. And I think what's also important when you're running a business is the more you can understand about your customer, the better. Right. So the fact is we have folks who are going to buy in, are going to potentially keep or sell pieces of what we give them. All of those are data points that inform us on how to make a better experience in the future. You add on top of that, you know, what we can measure on the ground with token proof, both pre and during the event. And suddenly you have a really rich data set. You know, we're very comfortable in that we want everything anonymized and aggregate. We don't want to identify anyone specifically. But I love the idea that I can understand how people are coming to a conference and then what they're doing at the conference because of the token gating nature. So even though we're doing it with a small subset, uh, you know, a thousand max people, uh, what that then exposes to us of how to reward loyalty in the future and being able to read those data signals is also super important. Um, I would love to sort of flip it, Carly, back on you, because I know you are sort of creating this tour, which is amazing. And you have a loyal audience who wants to sort of get kind of closer and closer to you. You know, you've chosen a bit of a different model, but I think that you have done like an amazing job in cultivating this beautiful audience that wants to get your knowledge and get to your your, your guests. And so what was your thought on how to sort of make ticketing work for you? Well, my initial thought (laughs) was different than my current thought. So uh, my initial thought was what you're doing, Sam, and and what you did for VCon last year. And it's interesting to hear the evolution of the thought process that on the Vayner side, but um, which is let's airdrop folks tickets um, and then they can sell those tickets independent from their main NFT and we can keep these two things separate. The challenge with our live events, and we haven't spoken about all uh, by the time this comes out we'll probably have publicly talked about this i don't know what well, here's the thought process y'all so <laughs> come at me i guess was we're trying to keep these events intimate so we're looking to keep them at like 100 people 150 people probably at, at the max but we have 750 800 well we have we have 1100 tokens out there so if we were to drop every token for example and then there's a debate do you drop it per token do you drop it per wallet like you know you guys know these machinations you do round and round in circles like in these meetings you know that's potentially 2200 tickets for what ends up being like 900 max seats and and that becomes a problem because if you, if somebody can sell a ticket that's independent from the core NFT and somebody buys that ticket and then can't actually get into the event 
that's a, a huge problem. So because we're limited in space, if we were like a big conference where it's 5,000 people and there was this one-to-one connection with like one NFT, like everybody who had an NFT would definitely be able to get into the event, then I think it's a no-brainer for us. We would have airdropped the tickets. Because we're not set up that way, we actually wanted to create a dynamic that was more better. We didn't want to oversupply on the ticket side. So that would drive price to, to zero. So instead, we're going to have the NFT itself be the actual ticket. You can you, you log in through token proof. You can reserve your seat somewhere using that NFT. If you have 10 NFTs in your wallet, you can reserve 10 different seats at, at different events. Um, but it was a, it became a supply demand problem lo- of like I think dropping tickets versus not. I think that's really smart. Um, I, you know, I want to give like Andy and the VFriends team like a huge amount of credit for their sort of recent innovation, which is called Burn Island. Because Carly, mm-hmm. exactly what you're talking about, I think that was the like leading thought 12 months ago. Like this space moves really fast. And, you know, even VCon 2022 had um, a separate airdrop for tickets that were done in collaboration with Snowfro, who is the creator of Chromie Squiggle and, and Art Blocks. Um, and that was a huge hit at the time. But then you're also essentially doubling the supply. And then yep. when you add that to um, other initiatives that may have happened, like you, you know, you need to be really smart about balancing that so that the value is there for collectors. At the top of this podcast, we talked about supply and demand being one of the biggest challenges in events. I think supply and demand is one of the biggest challenges in NFTs as well. It's gauging how many people are interested in this, what's a fair price to not price gouge, um, but also to make sure you cover your costs, have a little bit of room for optionality, and you know, you don't sort of overshoot how much supply exists. So I think what we're going to see over the next year is more um, more adding value to the core NFT yeah. instead of dropping additional. I think that has just changed a lot. Um, it, you know, the sort of how collectors are are valuing those sort of additional drops. Sort of fewer, bigger, better. I think will be the move. Um, so I, I like your plan. Yeah, I appreciate that. And then I should say, like you know, in case anybody's hopefully nobody's getting nervous, but if anybody's like, wait, not everybody's going to be able to show up to one of these events. You know, we have a, a like. Because we have an international audience who has known out the the jump that we were going to have in-person events, I think there's plenty of people who aren't actually going to be able to come to our live events. So by keeping the supply basically do just the tokens themselves, I'm very confident we'll be able to serve anybody who actually wants to physically attend an event. And if you want to come to an event, you'll be able to come to a live event. So we're not that was that's sort of the whole intention with this in in part. Um, but yeah, it, it, that that's the that's something that every project has to think about and determine for themselves. And Carly, you know, interesting, Carly, can I Sam, ask you a question yeah. about that though? Sure. So because I think both of you and Avery are making an amazing point. We actually chose a different track, right. right? For us, we said we want to divorce the art collection piece or the the token collection piece from, from the reward system. And so I could only imagine the challenge when, Carly, when you, you know, you're sitting in a room and you're sitting next to, you know, Jeff Bezos having an interview and it becomes Thank a you. really hot ticket. And then someone has to make the decision, do I sell my OPJ just because I want to get in that room? Right. And that, I think, was our challenge, which is what, you know, I mean, Avery, I think, knows how much of a squiggle maxi I am um, when it comes to like Snowfro. I don't want to have to make a decision ever to sell that piece because the benefit might immediately seem really attractive. Mm-hmm. And but so I think it's just a, it's a decision, that, right, that one just has to make. Totally. It's a decision, but it's also a different decision if you have a thousand pieces or if you have 190,000 pieces, right? Yeah. And like you have to calibrate that against the demand and about the demand of current collectors and about the demand of, you know, potentially new collectors. That's why, you know, it's not a one size fits all approach. And I think if you have a totally. thousand pieces, it's very different than if you have 200,000. And and that's, I think that's, a, that's 
I, I, exactly right. And if uh, I'm sitting in a in an auditorium interviewing Jeff Bezos someday, and and the uh, we can fit two thousand people in that room, then I do probably airdrop those tickets for folks because we know we can meet. Like my, my concern really did come down to somebody sells this ticket to somebody else, and now there's this there's this crazy abundant supply of tickets. First of all, which could drive the price down because we can't meet that supply with like seats <laughs> at the event. <laughs> it, it also makes me wonder about you know something like Proof, where I do think that you know Kevin has a tremendous amount of devoted mm. fans, and I wonder if the initial thought of everyone should get to come is actually mm. the inherent problem. Right. If if he had said, I have X number, 7,000 tokens out and I have 1,500 seats and I planned a 1,500 person experience, I think proof of conference would have been a success. Mm. I think that Avery took a bet and I think it paid off uh, at VCon that the idea kind of like, ha- let's make sure we have room for everybody and therefore super smart. Let's get a stadium. Right. Which is different than let's get a small venue that can feel intimate and can feel you know interesting. I think we're seeing actually with ApeFest, a similar problem, right? They kind of outgrew all of the events that they have because now between Board Apes, Mutants, Kennel Club, they have so many tokens out there that they can only, they, they need a 20,000, you know, they need Madison Square right. Square Garden and able to satisfy that. But that's not really, I think, what the apes want, right? Like I think, I think, and I think that becomes one of the big challenges is how do you right size your events, which any event producer needs to think about versus a, what should be an ever growing community right to get more and more people into your funnel and then you just how do you figure out the game gamification to make it so that it's fair and even for people to want to attend those live events yeah and i think you're also bringing up so i think the blockchain gives us the ability to interact post event like never before and really use this as like an access pass as an ongoing thing that has like real value like post the event which is a massive deal what I think it adds complication to, though, is you don't have the same like RSVP situation that you would have when you buy a single ticket. Um, so, you know, I don't know how many people are going to come to VCon this year. Like, I know he came last year, but, you know, there are, are two uh, wonderful ladies handling VCon um, as the EVPs on that business. And we don't have 100% confidence of exactly how many people are going to show up. It could be 10,555, 12,555, could be 5,000, could be 8,000. I think it's you know important to be sort of prepared for um, either outcome, which is something that you somewhat deal with with normal events. There's like, oh, if it rains, not as many people will come if there's a weather issue. But usually if people bought a ticket, they will really be aiming to come versus um, I don't think in the sort of Web3 communities where this is one of the piece of value, everyone will 100% come, especially because it involves travel. There's logistics. You have to take days off, like all these things that sort of go into it. So I think Web3 events, you're not never exactly sure how many people are, are going to show up, which um, I think would probably be a big challenge for an event producer. Uh, this is something we're dealing with. I mean, people are going to have to RSVP and reserve a seat for us using their token because we we need to have a, <laughs> we need to have a sense because we're not doing a big stadium and we need to we need to be able to control for that. And it is something you're dealing with because you're not charging extra for a ticket because it's something that people already bought. It's very easy to RSVP and say, yeah, I'm coming. Even with RSVPing, like the attrition rates here, because when you're doing something that is free because somebody has paid, you know, pr- previously, not just for this event, we're like very nervous about like, how do we properly account for how much attrition there might be to the event or not, or like make sure you know, we yeah. have the people there. By the way, there is an RSVP. I should say that for Recon. Yeah. <laughs> it's an RSVP, but it's just not, it's not going to be the same level of um, right. certainty that you might have when someone like purchased a ticket um, specifically. And there's like room blocks and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but I think that's, uh, that's sort of a unique 
challenge that probably many others wouldn't have. Um, but I think broadly, like, you know, Vayner 3, we did a, a little white paper on, on token-based experiences because I think that this is a massive unlock that a lot of yes. enterprises just really understand. It's a clear thing, you know, that's so divorced from speculation. Yes, it, it offers some liquidity and ability to, you know, move it if you don't like it anymore. But um, the sort of before, during, and after components, um, I think are massive. And particularly for uh, NFTs that are dropped on on what we believe will be sort of the main um the main chain, um, EVM compatible. I think it, it has this really amazing opportunity to sort of future-proof an events business. Um, you know, the biggest threat to a lot of brands and businesses is just being stale, like they have to try innovation. And this allows them to do something that they were already doing while like adding this layer of innovation that could end up being massively beneficial, like, you know, to three, five years down the road. So as part of, for the OPJ stuff, we've got this OPJ NFT, it's backed by a bottle of gin. Some folks, folks in my audience will almost certainly know this by this point. Um, but, and then it also gives you access to this live tour we're doing, but it also gives you access to virtual events. Again, I, I knew that there were people in our audience who were buying this NFT who aren't in the United States, who weren't gonna be able to come make it to the live tour. And this has been one of the biggest ahas for me around NFTs and ticketing. And I, I've given this example before, but I, I think it's worth it. Like, to, to just give it again, if anybody has not heard this, like I worked on a presidential campaign back in for the 2020 election cycle. And we, I worked, I was our, our finance director, so I was working with a lot of our, big, of our big donors. And we would want to do these virtual events. Like if you had given more than $2,000 to the campaign, you know, hop on this Zoom call with the candidate. Like we wanted to try and do that kind of thing. And it was a nightmare because you're like emailing out the people who have given $2,000 with a link to a Zoom, for example, with a password being like, oh my God, like, please don't share it. Like, you know, you're dealing with a political candidate who has people who hate them. You're worried about like the link being leaked and now you have like chaos on the Zoom or somebody's like, you know, like there was just so many risks there. And then you're like trying to track, okay, who... Like, let me check who's trying to join this Zoom call against like their email address and is it the right name? And like, that was such a nightmare. Fast forward, you know, I've done these token gated now virtual podcasts with guests and it's amazing. People of the OPJ NFT log in, token gated, they alone get get the access. And then the cross collaboration is amazing. So I had Raul Powell on, for example, and he has Real Vision and he has Real Vision NFT holders. Snap of our fingers, we could add the Real Vision contract and now Real Vision holders could come and also experience that token gated content. That, like, if you haven't experienced the pain point of that, it can maybe be easy to not really realize how awesome that is. Because the alternative is like a closed, is a closed platform where somebody has to like download the app or make sure they're in like some particular, it, it's, it, it's really amazing what it unlocks. And uh, that's been something I've been really excited about is these as tickets for virtual things. I think that there's, and what, what you're both talking about is, is such, such a powerful thought that I think it's even hard to grasp, right? Mm. The idea that, you know, we at Consensus could have Avery or could have Gary on a stage and immediately say, you all get to now watch that session because you have either collection, right? Is a big thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, uh, you know, we're at least Avery and I, I know we spent a lot of time in the advertising world pre Web3. And we remember, I'm sure, the conversations of, oh, you know what? We'd love to reach Britney Spears fans, but Britney Spears fans also buy seven jeans. And Britney Spears, Spears fans also buy, you know, this kind Sam, of. Sam, that's top. a very like 2002 <laughs> reference. Well, I, I'm, I'm dating myself. I mentioned right Pete now. Rose, so I'm, I can't throw stones, but. But, you know, but, but what I'm saying is, I think that. You know, and again, not that I want to write their their business plan for them, but you know, if I was South by and I was worried about 
consensus and I was worried about VCon and I was worried about CES or the fact that Tribeca Film just did an NFT ticket. I now get to say, look at all of these people that I can get some data on and try yes. to say, how do I make it more valuable for them now to come to mind? Because they, because I can give them an offer because they came to consensus, right? And I can do the same thing to VCon if I want, right? Like, so that is, I think, a giant unlock that people are not thinking about the idea of wallet behavior as deterministic of whether or not someone is more valuable to you in the events world or in the consumer mm-hmm. package goods worlds or in the, or the auto world is still we're at the infancy of it but to me like yeah. it's such a magic way to think that i can just if someone went to vcon and consensus i could tell so much about them and the ability for that for myself to be able to convince them to come to my event by giving them offers Right. Yeah. And Sam, what I think you're getting to that's just like the absolute practicality of it is like right now, it doesn't make sense for South by to change all their tickets to NFTs because there are not enough people who care about that. However, what it does make sense for them to do is add an element of this that gives them the optionality to connect with these consumers in the future for not a lot more work that's going to help position them as more relevant and potentially future proof the you know, their ticketing strategy. That's why I think this is something that, you know, major festivals need to be paying attention to. And they are right. Like, We've seen some mixed results. I think what I've seen a lot of um, you know festivals do is lean really heavily into the Web3 audience because that's where they see there is activity. And I don't know that that's the right strategy. I think leaning into their audience and developing something that's interesting yes. for their audience, whether they're into rolling louder, back to my country music example, whether they're into um, being a parrot head, right? Like what do those people want? Design something for them. It doesn't have to onboard millions, but it gives a little bit more value to the people who are willing to participate in that for not a lot more cost and allows that organization to have learnings and, you know, a a leg up, like as ticketing evolves, which we know it will, like every business is change. Um, This is clearly something that you know, a lot of these companies are paying attention to, but they need to embrace it in a way that actually makes sense for their consumers. I have I have two thoughts on this. First, I totally agree with that, Avery, and you would you probably know even better than anybody on this call, like what what big brands are thinking. But I would say even outside of events, I feel that way. Like, you know, I think the time has passed. Like it feels old now, all these like companies that are clearly trying to build a strategy for Web3 audiences. And it's like not build a strategy for their audience. And I really like, I think that's broadly speaking, something that these companies need to shift away from just targeting Web3 people. My own counter to that is, uh, again, back when I was working on, I worked on, on Andrew Yang's presidential campaign and, and Chappelle was a supporter, Dave Chappelle. This is pre some of his more recent controversies. And, um, he wanted to, to throw a, a live show and donate it to the campaign, like have the proceeds go to the, to, to the campaign. The way campaign finance works, you can't, you can't take more than $2,800 from one person on the campaign. So something like that could be donated to a pack or a super pack, but that means that you as the campaign don't, actually have direct control over it. So we were trying to sell the tickets as the donations, essentially. So somebody bought a ticket, that money would come from them as like a donation to the campaign was was the ideal. And we set up a whole page where we could compliantly do that because there's different, you know, to get money as a political campaign, it's, it's different. But we set up this whole page. I mean, we could not sell out this show. And it wasn't because people didn't want to donate. It was even that. It was to change the consumer behavior even like a little bit to take pull them off of Ticketmaster just seemed to like break people's brains. And I was like, this is Dave Chappelle, like the height of the most popular comedian in the world. And we could not sell out his show simply because the ticket experience was different than what people were expecting. So I am really sympathetic to the fact that like, I, I was shocked by that. And it was such a learning of like, people do not 
want things to be different. If something's even a little bit different than what they're used to, or there's even a little bit more friction, they just won't do it. And we ended up just having to put the tickets on Ticketmaster and he donated to a pack and hopefully I'm not, <laughs> I think that's all public, right? And, um, and you know, we just couldn't end up getting it individually on the campaign because changing people's process on buying tickets was, um, it, it just like didn't work. And we had the most popular You need popular to meet people the where the they world. are. Yeah. You, know, you have exactly. to meet people where they are. And some people, not everyone, but some people want to participate in new things. So like, oh, that's kind of cool. I've heard about these things. I'll do it. That's not everyone. That's why, you know, out of 20,000 people, Sam's doing it for a thousand. That's like a nice, reasonable yes. number that you could probably change their behavior. And a thousand people who are already have wallets. You know what I mean? Like they may not be into NFTs, but they at least presumably have crypto wallets. Like, and that's what's so, right, Sam? Yes, exactly. Yes. Because that's what's so mind-boggling is you, you're like, I know... Like, hey, we don't know how well our audience is going to embrace this. And God damn, your audience is like at least like a crypto friendly audience, you know. So I think that's um, that just shows it's hard. We, it's just it's a long road to really get the consumer here. It's a long road, but I I really do believe that there will be some killer app that makes this something that consumers care about. Mm. You know, I think um, we need to meet people where they are. We need to be realistic. Like, uh, Sam, I love, you know, your approach and um, also your expectations. I think they're set correctly, right? I speak to a lot of organizations and big events who assume that because they're really popular, they're going to sell out. I don't think that's the reality, um, especially, you know, when you're looking at something that's a little bit more niche. Um, but... Uh, you know, we've also moved away from calling them tickets. We call even this little white paper we did token-based experiences. We call them mm-hmm. blockchain-based tickets, things like that. Framing it as a ticket is something that people understand um, versus even the vocabulary around like NFT or token can honestly be pretty polarizing. The other thing when I think about the experiences, like again, we're seeing maybe loud punks struggle or like not fully sell out or, or now I think they sold out, but now they're they're below mint price. And again, I want to like applaud them. I think it's really interesting what they're doing. I don't know if the lifetime bet was the right one to make, but like really appreciate that they're doing what they're doing. Um, it, when, I, when I think back to when you guys launched Friends, I mean, the amount of materials I felt like that I saw coming out of Gary and coming out of Gary's ecosystem, like teaching people how this stuff worked was like, that was a tremendous amount of work. And I think most brands, and I, I don't want to speak specifically for like Rolling Loud or any of this because I don't know exactly, but like if if you're going to target even a, a, a small subset of your audience, you need to just be like hitting people hard with the education on how to do this and not expecting them to go kind of find it themselves online somewhere. And like if you're the event that they want to be attending and they're your fan, like they need to be getting that information from you in terms of how to set things up. And it's not just like a one-off blog post. Like that needs to be a recurring drip that you are just dripping on your audience, which is how Gary, you guys, I felt like I was inundated. It was just like a wall of information about how to set up a wallet and over and over again. I think that was really going the most purest approach. And I think that worked for Gary and that worked for V Friends in a way that it probably wouldn't work for a music festival, right? We've even seen this in the context of Superfest, which is something I think is a really cool concept. Um, but the reality is it's a it's a big chasm to cross. Um, it's a huge change in behavior. And Gary was able to successfully do that, but I've not seen many others who are able to do that at the same level of success. And it's still very hand-to-hand combat. Like, you know, there's mm-hmm. a concierge on on VFriends who literally helps people get set up and, you know, continues to do that because there are people who are like, I want to come to this conference. And the only way to get in is to have a VFriends Series 1 or sponsor VCon. So if anyone's interested, hit me up. <laughs> um, uh, same for know, the OPJ and, Happy Hour Tour, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> you will also get a ticket, so you can uh, hit me up. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, I think that that's like it, it It takes a special kind of person and a special kind of content creator to be able to mobilize yeah. an audience like that. And it might be the right thing for Gary and it isn't the right thing for, you know, XYZ Music Festival. Um, but I think it's right for all of these music festivals and conferences and venues to be looking into this space um, in a big way. But how do they target their own audience, like we were saying, and not provide that educational so, piece? So I think that you create something that they want. Like, let's just say it's a parrot head thing, right? There's a, you know, meet and greet with Jimmy Buffett. You get to go in the plane, which is painted like a margarita. Um, you, like, I think you a really lot of people know would, a lot about this. would actually want that, right? Like, that's something that people would want and they right. would pay money for. So you're like, you want this? You have, this is how you get it. You have to do it like this. And then you make that experience seamless. You know, I think I, I've changed my perspective over this over time. Um, I think a custodial wallet or something like that that's even branded like a you know Margaritaville yeah. might be it might be an easy thing that people understand. Yeah. They're not scared by. I think um, I saw a really awesome demo yesterday from the Bitsky team, and they've got a great custodial wallet product. Um, so everybody check that out if you're interested. There are so many wallet as a service providers um, springing up right now. So if I was you know planning yeah. a, a parrot head, I would think about for parrot heads. I would think about what they really want. Design an NFT that unlocks access to that at a small scale and do it in a way that feels on brand and natural and not scary and signing a you know token hash transaction with a yeah, bunch of digits after it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what you're saying, though, is really both the opportunity and the problem, which is, you know, as Carly mentioned, like our audience is the most crypto native and they we still have to get them over the line. Right. You know, even Gary and again, VFair has been a miraculous success, but he has millions and millions of followers and there's thousands of people in that ecosystem. and He had to drag them like, you know, and he did the work to get them there. I think what you're saying is the right thing, which is we are all waiting for that moment when we can stop saying blockchain and stop saying NFT and stop saying like token and layer one, layer two, and just say, hey, this is your opportunity to come play with us, right? Like that's all it needs to be. And whether, you know, the ones who want to take the extra step, the 10% extra who want to say, you know what, I'd love to pull this over because I am interested in this, I can do that. Or the Starbucks model, someone suddenly offers you money for a stamp that you earn because now you're playing an Odyssey instead of on their regular app. That I think is the is the real power of what we're all talking about. It just is... I hate the term we're still early because I just think that it is what it is. But I think the fact is, I think that we're all designing experiences that we're not, we don't have to sort of change consumer behavior so much for. And up until this moment, we've had to do that too much and it's caused problems. We know every time, every page you put in a web page, someone drops off so you don't get that sale. We're doing that times 10 in blockchain right now. So, you know, our project you know, your project, Carly, what VCon has done, all of the amazing steps that get us there. We're still a couple of years away from where we truly want it to be. But I think the opportunity is there to say, again, going back to our first thing here, how do we be additive uh, to the consumer experience instead of extractive from the consumer experience and focused on what value is for our most loyal customers is really where we should all be focused. That's a great note on which to end. Unless you guys have anything else to add, but I, but yes, ditto, agreed. Check the show notes for all of our links. Show notes. What he said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having us and, and partnering Carly. Sam, always a pleasure to get to hang out with you. And especially when we get to have Carly in the mix. Thank you both so much. This was so fun. Yeah. Can't wait to do it again. Mm-hmm. 
save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NIA, or Stride Bank NIA members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.